Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Liz Porter is the author of Cold Case Files, an account of how cold cases from Australia, the UK and the US have been solved using new science and techniques. She's also the author of Written on the Skin, which was the joint winner of the 2007 Ned Kelly Award for Best True Crime Book. Liz began her career as a journalist in Hong Kong, later working in Sydney, London and Stuttgart before returning to Melbourne to work as a feature writer for The Age. Her books focus on true crime stories and the science involved in solving them. In 1995, she published a fictional novel, Unnatural Order. Cold Case Files looks at a number of cases, including the mystery of a 12-year-old murder, how DNA was extracted from a 1973 crime scene, the mysterious death of an 8-year-old ancient Egyptian mummy, and whether Johann Sebastian Bach really did write the cello suites. So Liz, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Tell us about your latest book, Cold Case Files. Intriguing. <laughs> well, um, my latest book is a compilation of um, 18 different uh, cases that were uh, mysteries that were sold at some point um, by forensic science. And they're not all crimes, I hasten to add. Um, one involves uh, the death of of a child mummy. A forensic mm-hmm. Egyptologist looks at the um, the head of the mummy, in fact, which was all that was left, um, all these years later, calls in a forensic dentist to look at uh, the jaw and uh, she comes to the conclusion that this unfortunate child most probably died as a result of an orthodontic operation to uh, remove extra teeth. Mm. Uh, the other non-crime one involves the work of an art specialist who uh, consults on what they call questionable paintings. <laughs> and the third one is a forensic, a musician who trains as a forensic document examiner because he wants to look at uh, the work of Bach, um, specifically the cello suites, to establish his theory that uh, Bach's second wife composed the cello suites and didn't just copy them out. Right. So this interest in forensics uh, has been uh, going for a while for you because in 2007 you won the Ned Kelly Award for Written on the Skin, which is also based around the uh, art and science of forensics. Mm. Why the interest? Why are you so interested in writing about forensics and, and, and in particular crime as well, even though some of those things aren't crime. Yes, and the rest of the, the cases in the book are, you know, murders and um, robberies, I hate to yes. Too, yes. Um, look, it, it came about uh, firstly through writing about uh, forensic science as a journalist for the Sunday Age, and that interest came about from watching shows like uh, Silent Witness or McCallum, mm. um, 
which is in which Robert Hannah played a um, a forensic pathologist. I um, was curious to know what was it really like, and so I went out to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine and I spent a few days there and wrote an article for. Uh, Sunday Life magazine, which in those days was a more serious newsy magazine, about the work of the institute, and and that then led me to the police forensic centre because I was curious to see what they were up to, and then um, I wrote a piece about a particular case where a, a fire and bomb blast examiner uh, was the crucial um, person in the conviction of a man for the murder of his child and the attempted murder of his wife. Mm-hmm. I wrote that up for uh, the Sunday Age. Uh, it was one of those cases where, um, as I said, the forensic scientist evidence was crucial. It, it, it was the crucial uh, proof to the jury that um, this particular uh, fire was not an accident, as the um, the husband had suggested, but it was in fact a deliberately lit fire. Mm. And this is not usual. In usual cases, the forensic evidence is only part of the um, of the, the brief of evidence, it's there to support um, what police usually know other ways. But in this case, the forensic evidence was crucial, and it's what happens in in television crime, mm. but less often in real life. Mm. And so, after I wrote that, Pan McMillan actually contacted me and said, "What an extraordinary case." Would you have others like that? And I said, well, well, I probably would, because I, by this stage, having done the story about the, uh, for the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, I had already had quite a few contacts in that area. So I thought, well, I just ring everybody I know, and ask them to give me their best cases and tell me, tell me about other um, people who who might have different areas of forensic expertise. And I was confident that I could get together a book like that and, and that's what happened with written on the skin mm. and it i mean it's fascinating reading isn't it because it, these are all real and it's all happening mm. um it's all happening in in our lives every day mm. when you're researching it though because it is real it's not mm. from your imagination it's not fiction mm. um is it is it difficult is it something that um is quite confronting or can you put a distance to it Oh, well, I, what I find, the difficulties for me are not in the um, graphic nature, sometimes the material. I don't know, I've, I've just become inured to that. Mm. I, I remember when I was researching uh, Written on the Skin, one of my chapters involved the work of a forensic entomologist and the forensic entomologist looks at the progression of insects that colonise a dead body and, and valuable information can be gained that way because... Uh, especially as to time of death. Time of death can be crucial, of course, as to being appointed to who might have been responsible for the death. Mm. Very, very, very important. Mm. So as part of my research for that, I was reading um, a book by an American forensic entomologist, someone who was, in fact, a consultant on one of the first CSI programs. Mm. And the book is called A Fly for the Prosecution. Mm. And uh, and I was reading all sorts of graphic cases about, uh, you know, Blowflies and dead bodies, and I was eating my lunch at the time. And I thought to myself, "You have really um, well. Have you got a problem? But or certainly, maybe you've certainly lost some sensitivity. I just somehow distract myself 
from that. And the difficulty in writing, for me, um, true crime is not about that. It's about just the making sure you have all the facts right and um, and the realisation that you can't rely on people's memories. Mm. You've always got to go to the documents. You've always got to go to the trial transcripts and the, uh, uh, the forensic reports or the coroner's reports or whatever you can get your hands on mm. like that. Mm. So with both uh, Written on the Skin and Cold Case Files, they are books and so they are longer tomes mm. than... Um, than uh, the articles that you're used to mm. writing as a journalist. What was that process like? Because you do get a sense of satisfaction when you mm. when you write an article and it's done and you've spent mm. however long on it, but it's done. It takes far longer to mm. write a book. How did you get into that groove or did you feel like it was kind of never-ending? <laughs> well, sometimes because you when you're writing um, a chapter, in my case, on a particular crime, you have to know everything. And when you're writing a newspaper article, well, you just don't have the space for a start mm. to know. There's no point in knowing everything because um, you can't explain it. And sometimes there are certain issues you might think, well, I'm not even going to raise that because it's going to take me 800 words mm. to get into it and out of it. Mm. And if I've only got 1,300, there's no point. So often the more difficult issues, sometimes you won't even flag because you don't want to confuse your reader or frustrate them. Absolutely. So it, and, and often you don't need to know, for example, a... a um, a forensic specialist might might um, say to you what a bad time they had with a particular uh, prosecutor in court and, you know, they were asked all sorts of awkward questions in front of the jury and you'll have a quote saying that mm. and you won't need to go and check the transcript and, and see. If you're going to put that in a book, you have to make sure that, in fact, the jury was there at the time. And I've discovered mm. on various occasions, um, and in fact, with the first book, was written on the skin, I was originally planning to include much more biographical information about the um, the experts in there. In fact, my first very elephantine draft had a lot of that kind of stuff in it. And in that, in one particular case, a forensic pathologist was telling me about what I a hard time she'd had in court and it actually had inspired her to study law herself mm. um, but I actually went to the transcript and I, her memory was in fact incorrect mm. uh, she was given a bad time by a, uh, a prosecutor but, or, sorry, in fact it was a defence lawyer sorry, it was a defence lawyer mm. but uh, it was not in the presence of the jury, the jury had been sent out mm. in that particular area, I mean it didn't matter um, but it would matter for the point she was making if I had put it in the book, mm. I had to know um, and you could, so it was a really, um, it was a really, really salutary lesson. And I've also, for example, once interviewing a very senior um, police officer, and he had one of his colleagues there, and he was telling me about a particular uh, a court case involving um, a series of rapes. And again, he was talking about uh, what the jury did or said, and and in fact, he had it wrong. He was conflating. Um, a few different cases and mm. entirely understandable because they deal with so many mm. but you have to go back to the um, to the paperwork and be absolutely sure. Wow, so the process of researching is so meticulous and so particular mm. compared to say mm. if you were researching something for historical fiction where you kind of just, oh, yes. you know you, you're researching but nowhere near the extent to what no. you, you were doing is it um, do you find it interesting or mundane or how do you feel about it? Well, well, I, 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 it's a, to me, it's all part of just putting the story together because particularly with this second book where, where um, 
there were fewer cases. The first book had 55 cases oh, in them, wow. so they weren't all told in such detail. This one they were. So it was very much a question of reconstructing the action of the detectives or in particularly with the action of the forensic scientists. So I really needed to know, have that bash-by-blow account. Mm-hmm. So I know um, I was backwards and forwards with emails to one particular uh, British uh, cold case expert, um, Dave Barclay, who wrote the forward to my book, and and uh, he says lovely things about me in the um, uh, in the forward. But um, he was certainly impressed by my um, uh, pursuit of accuracy. But I know that it, it, he probably found it quite irritable, uh, irritating at times because I mean I was always sending these apologetic emails in with the header, sorry, um, you know, one more pedantic question. Yes. Um, and because in, in many he had to then go back to his notes and say, well, yes, you know, was it was it the sample on the wall which um, yielded the crucial DNA or was it a mixed sample or, you know, where was the blood stain and that kind of thing. And you needed, if you're going to actually describe what happened in, in a lively well, kind of using the techniques you use in fiction to really bring the scene to life. And you need to know those things and you need to know often what was the weather like that day, say, or what time of day was it? Mm. All those questions that, that when you're interviewing someone for a newspaper, you don't need to know that kind of detail. Mm. And presumably, even though the cases themselves and the facts of the cases are fascinating, as you've just mentioned, you need to tell the story. Mm. How do you? What do you do to be able to tell these gory stories in the most appropriate way? What mm. do you think is key to that? Well, often it's, it's like any story. You have to figure out where to start. Mm. Um, and it's not as silly as it sounds because sometimes you want to pique the reader's interest. Mm. Um, so you have to give them a hint of what might come, that there might be some extraordinary forensic discovery to come. But you don't want to tell them the whole thing. Mm. Now, do you start in the middle and work backwards? Do you start If you start at the very beginning with the crime, well, then they don't really necessarily know that it it might be worth hanging around to find out what happens. If you start with the fact that there's um, this case was solved by an extraordinary uh, forensic uh, uh, piece of analysis, then you're going, you feel like you're giving it away. Mm. It's, those sort of considerations are always very important. Or I usually try and get the reader on side with the, well either the victim or the detective, I find. You, you want them to have some emotional reason for reading on, even though they've got it's a book in their hand, mm, so there's mm. slightly less um, possibly onus on you to grab them in the way that you feel you have to when you're writing a piece for a newspaper. Mm. But still, you still want them to keep reading. For sure. So with mm. each case then, do you already know from your gut at the start what your hook is going to be or do you wait till you research everything and then... I tend to wait until I research everything. Sometimes I have an idea... Um, you know, of how I want to start something, um, and and you know, and you, you you write it the first time that way, and then you end up um, changing your mind. You know, I had, for example, one of the stories in the book is called um, the almost perfect bank heist, mm-hmm. and um, I. Um, my idea for this was these guys who were very very well prepared as bank robbers. They had done their. Um, their homework in terms of their robbery, but they hadn't done their science homework because, um, in in a sense, it was forensic science that undid them. They they used some extraordinarily um, unusual masks 
in to cover their faces in the execution of this robbery, and then they threw them away in the street. And unbeknownst to them, um, a discovery uh, was taking place about 20 k's away from them at the, for- the police forensic science lab, which enabled scientists to get what um, trace DNA from from just bits of sweat wow. off the lining of the of the masks. And so. I, very much how I started it or how I had in mind I was going to say that these, these two perpetrators had done their, their homework as bank robbers but they hadn't done their science homework. But in fact, I, I realised that I couldn't start it that way because I, I was giving away too much. Mm. So I ended up starting it with um, the fact they had done their homework uh, and how planning was so good and I then went on to talk about um, the detectives and how one in particular had joined the armed robbery squad because he wanted to match wits with with criminals who had done their homework. He didn't just want to be mm. arresting people who stormed into banks and, and uh, jumped over the counter and uh, you know waved guns in people's faces. Mm. He, he enjoyed um, uh, that challenge of, of to tracking down someone who had really done a good job. But I couldn't, I didn't get to the bit, I did get to use the line about the science homework, mm. but I didn't get to use it until halfway through. And it's often not until you start writing it that you realise um, that you have to... Um, uh, you know, adjust those that original. Or oh, what a great intro idea that you initially come up with. Mm-mm. Now, obviously, you've come across various cases that could have made it into your book. Mm. How did you decide the ones that made the cut? Well, um, sometimes those decisions were made for me because I just couldn't get. There were sometimes there were cases that I wanted to have for the book. Yes. There was one particular case which involved forensic dentistry and I did touch on forensic dentistry with the Egyptology case but there was a case of a a young tourist who'd gone missing and remained unidentified in Australia for a long time until a forensic dentist who I uh, used for the first book had had basically solved the crime and basically I never got um, he was happy to talk to me the dentist but I needed um, permission from the coroner and they to, to uh, allow um, people to look at coronial files that are not um, uh, that are less than ten years old. So after ten years, I think they go to the um, uh, the archives office and you can get them. You have to get permission from from the family. Now the family of this unfortunate young man were in Germany, but this had all taken place in the late nineties. And the mother was an old woman then, and I, and I knew she was dead, and so did the forensic dentist. So of course the coroner's office wasn't going to get a reply when they wrote to the family. Mm. Um, but they just wouldn't see reason about mm. that. And so they hadn't had a reply from the family, therefore I couldn't do that case. Ugh. So that was really annoying. Mm. But my main criterion, besides in, in choosing the cases that made the cut, was were they different enough? Um, many of them involved DNA, but I didn't want them all to involve just the DNA database because mm. what often happens these days, the most common way that a cold case is solved is that um, uh, a DNA profile is, is uh, extracted from old evidence because of the newer techniques and evidence from a crime took place in the 80s or the 90s. Mm. And then um, if there were no leads to suspects, uh, what happens is um, that DNA goes on, that profile goes onto the database, and then if the police are lucky, they get what's called a cold hit, where that perpetrator commits some other crime down the line, is is uh, arrested, convicted, his or her DNA goes onto the database, then is then automatically run against all the unknown 
uh, crime scene DNA on the database and they get a hit and then they, they know that that brings a connection between the two cases. Well, I was happy just to have, you know, one of those, but I needed to have more cases with more backstory to those, you know, so a case where... Um, case which involved, for example, the covert collection of DNA. I, I like that idea. So I had a case where um, uh, a police officer had to basically get into somebody's house and, and he asked him to draw a map of... Um, because this, this suspect was a serial complainer and he complained, complained about a, a, uh, a drover who had supposedly stolen stuff from his farm. So the police... Uh, visited him and said, look, can you give us more information? Can you help us? Mm. And he got, they brought a piece of paper and a clean pen and they were hoping to get DNA mm. just from him touching the paper. And But they got more than that because the guy was very excited as he was telling them the story and, and spittle was collecting <laughs> in the corner of his mouth and falling onto the paper so they got uh they got the dna that way so that was uh, that that gave that particular case an extra level of interest it sounds almost addictive researching and mm. finding out these stories do you find that you're doing this even when you're not writing a book uh, well i was taking interest i mean i i loved when i was close to the end of the book i found or heard about a case in tasmania where and it actually made world headlines this case where um a an armed robber had been identified some, you know, eight or ten years later because, you know, eight or, or ten years earlier when this robbery had taken place, the a, a sharp-eyed police officer had spotted a fat-bodied leech lying on the ground. <sighs> and, and he thought, well, none of the police had leech bites. The victim had no leech bites. Clearly, the leech had ridden in on the, the clothing or, or leg or whatever of the perpetrator. Yes. So... This leech was taken off to the uh, crime lab and, and the blood extracted and a DNA profile extracted. And then they just waited and, and sometime down the track, um, the, that perpetrator committed another crime was, and it was a drug offence that time and, and he was DNA profiled. And so um, his involvement in the earlier crime came to light. Well, I had already pretty much finished the book by then, but I, I managed to squeeze it into the introduction. Mm. Um, but uh, yes, these days I have to say, I have a Google alert which still brings up cold cases, but I haven't been looking at them because I, because I've now uh, finished the book and I think I'll <laughs> I have thoughts about doing a a UK version of this book I mean I have got four UK cases in the book but um, I kind of quite like to have a go at trying a different market so uh, I will start um, but looking um, at those uh, Google alerts more closely um, probably over the next few months. It's not every day you hear, I have a Google alert for cold cases. Yes, that's right. Well, most of them come from America, I hasten to say, and they're all a bit the same. But, you know, it's a handy way just to sort of keep your... Um, to, to sort of keep your your eyes on what's happening, having a Google alert, yeah. a Google News alert. Well, you say that you're interested in perhaps trying something different next. Now, mm. you've previously written fiction. So- I have. I wrote a novel in, in uh, 1995, which was um, inspired by my time living in Germany. I had um, gone there um, in the uh, mid-'80s just as a tourist, really, on that classic thing of meeting someone, and he said, come, why don't you come and live with me? And, <laughs> uh, and I thought, 
well, I was kind of at a bit of a loose end of the time I was working in London, and I thought, oh, why not change? You yes. know, as good as a holiday. In fact, it wasn't really, and uh, but I did get a novel out of it. Often at the time, when I was having a really ghastly time there, I used to think, well, at least I'll get something out of this from the writing <laughs> point of view. And um, so do you have a preference to fiction or, 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 or true uh, crime? Well, it's interesting. Look, it's been a slightly a, almost a practical thing. I was working at the time uh, Pan Macmillan contacted me um, back in, in 2003 when I wrote the article about the uh, the fire and bomb blast examiner. Mm. I was actually working on a novel. In fact, I oh. had, after the first novel, it was Unnatural Order, after mm. that was published, I'd started working on a second novel, which I finished. And it came very close to being published at Penguin, but it didn't get published. So then I started actually writing a, a crime novel and I was about five chapters into it um, when um, Pan Macmillan contacted me and I suddenly thought, oh, I think I'll just write non-fiction. It seemed, um, well, easier in the sense that I already had somebody who wanted to publish it. Yeah. You know, and then and then that, that sort of put me off on that trail. Mm. Um, I'm interested in going back to crime fiction, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'm having a bit of a break at the moment. I'm going to go back to freelance journalism for a bit. Mm. Um, because it takes a lot out of you writing a book. Oh, yeah. you know, I, was, I was flat out on it really for pretty much 18 months yeah. and uh, I think I'd like to just write shorter pieces for a while. Yes. Have some breathing space. Yeah. So yeah. when you are writing the book or mm. your, your books, do you have a, a writing routine or, you know? Oh, yes. Just discipline, discipline, discipline. Right. You must get to the desk, you know, by, well, ideally 9 but, or the, at the worst 9.30 and I used to, I'm a, probably excessively addicted to the word count. Right. I'm always checking my word count. I, I feel that I can't, uh, you know, call it a day till I've written at least 1,500 words. I just, even if they're not all usable, right. um, I find, because uh, you, you really feel like you have to be moving forward. Yeah. You know, and I know even though some days, that thing about how do I start? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shocker at starting and restarting, and I can't move forward until I have the first few paragraphs right. Mm. Maybe that's a, a newspaper thing mm. because the first few paragraphs are so crucial. Yeah. And and it's a bit silly, really, because in, in essence, you can sometimes just say, okay, well, I'll just write this bit and it'll, fit, it'll slot in later somewhere. But I, I just, I just don't feel right doing that. I just like to be comfortable with the opening, even mm. though sometime later. I may come back to it and, uh, and change it. Mm. I just like to know that I'm happy with with where I'm at and that I'm happy with the, you know, 1,000 or 1,500 words that preceded so mm. I can just comfortably keep moving forward. Yeah, I totally relate to that. You have to, mm. I always have to start the beginning um, mm. and make sure that that's right as well. Uh, so with the... You, your books that are so research-based, do you do mm. all the research first and then get stuck into it? Um, do you do it case by case? How, how does it work? Um, well, I was tending to do... I actually started the research uh, while I was still... I, I left the Sunday Age in the middle of 2009 and I had started the research um, after I signed the contract, which was sometime earlier than that. So I was sort of picking away at, at bits and pieces. But sometimes... Um, it varied because, for example, um, I had contacted Dave Barclay, who's this British cold case expert um, who wrote the forward to the book, and it actually appears in, in four cases. I only got onto him um, through um, a West Australian case, through the Mallard case, uh, which is a case involving um, a very unfortunate man who was jailed for 12 and a half years for a crime he didn't commit, um, Andrew Mallard. And um, Dave Barclay had 
um, come out to Australia to do the cold case reinvestigation of of that case. And Mallard was freed from jail while they didn't know who'd done it. They knew he hadn't. And then the cold case investigation started. So I only became aware of Dave through that, and I contacted him. And then I realised that, firstly, he'd been involved in a couple of cases that I was already on, and then he told me about one other that he thought was worth pursuing, and which was a, the um, a case of a, a woman called um, Hilda Morell, who was a, uh, a best known as a rose grower but mm-hmm. and the nuclear anti-nuclear activist who had been murdered in 1984 in the UK and for many many years it was thought that it was uh, basically she was the victim of a conspiracy that she was murdered because she knew something um, about either um, um, anti-nuclear materials or something to do with the sinking of the Belgrano because her nephew had been in the Navy there were so many conspiracy theories circulating around this murder mm. and it turned out to be a simple botched robbery by a teenager mm. that had gone wrong mm. and that was later discovered um, in a via the cold case investigation. So in a sense it was a, it was a mixture. I try to know to have done all the research before I start writing however mm. Mm. and in, in an ideal circumstance in fact um, to, to come back to that case of the almost perfect bank heist I had trouble getting on to um, the detective that I was after. So at that point, I had the court transcript from the case. I had interviewed the prosecutor. So I'd had, he'd been kind enough to give me um, all his notes and a whole lot of other material. And in that case, I actually wrote the case up um, and then leaving spaces for where I wanted more information from the police officers who'd actually investigated because I had a pretty good idea because I'd read the whole court transcript I sort of knew what had happened mm. and that was actually worked really well because then I knew by writing a, a draft of the story I knew the particular things I wanted to know from them often if you interview the um, the talent first mm. you don't know you don't know what you don't know mm. yes and then you have to come back to them. Mm. So that was quite useful. And finally, what's your advice to other writers out there who are, who have this fascination with crime and, and mm. want to explore writing it, but, you know, they're not sure whether they, whether they want to do crime fiction, whether they want to do true crime, whether, you know, which way to go? Mm. Well, I think it's... It, it, uh, you have to ask yourself often, what do I have to offer you have to look at, at it from the other end, I think, sometimes. I mean, unless you're prepared just to write for the sheer pleasure of it and mm. hand out copies to your friends. Mm. Um, is there an audience for this? And that's always the key question you have to ask yourself. Who would want to read this book and why? Because um, that will help you, clarifying that will help you get a publisher. I mean, I guess I'm very, as a newspaper person, I'm very much... Um, uh, if I can't sell this, I'm not going to write it, you know? Mm. I'm in awe of people who are prepared to to write kind of just on spec. Mm. Um, and, and so that's, to me, the key question. Does the world need this? Mm. Am I filling a gap? Um, is this crime that interests me? Is it of interest to other people enough mm. that a publisher is going to want to um, invest their uh, hard-earned dollars on it, on, on printing it, on promoting it? That would be a key question. Um in essence, I've always, or since I've become involved with nonfiction, have somehow imagined that um, nonfiction was, in a way, um, uh, not easy to write. But it seemed that advances for it were healthier than advances for fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but that may be changing. I mean, at the moment, as you know, we're in a really 
worrying time for publishing. Mm. Um, the demise of uh, Borders and um, and Angus and Robertson has, for example, slashed um, automatically slashing advances because it's slashing the number of books that publishers know that they'll be able to sell because Borders would automatically take of certain sorts of books. They'd take one or two thousand. Mm, mm. And... Um, so it's a very it's a time where more and more I think writers have to be asking themselves who is my audience who will buy this book and presumably would you also say they need to become familiar with crime and procedures and police oh, work totally, and yes. you know that kind of thing and oh yes w- what's your advice well, on how to do that oh well um, read 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 there's so much stuff available um, just in libraries and on the internet about about techniques, about forensic techniques. I mean, my books are a great, um, uh, in fact, source for mm. people wanting to write fiction because um, they contain stories it's that real. are usable, mm. um, even as a, or adaptable for a subplot, but they're terribly important. Readers, it's interesting, in, in crime fiction, there are the sort of, um, you have to get the small facts right. You can tell big lies, mm. like oh, most forensic or and uh, crime fiction contains huge basic lies like um, how many suspects, because you can't have a case um, with 100 suspects um, in, a, in, a, um, in, in, a, in a novel, because it's just not, bele- it was believable, but it's, readers would go mad and get horribly confused. Mm. Yet the typical complex case might have as many as, as you know, 100, sometimes 200 potential, if not suspects, and persons of interest. Mm. And you can't possibly render that in, in fiction. You have to narrow down the number of suspects so that the reader can keep track of them and also the number of people who are at any crime scene. Um, in real life, there's you know, huge teams of people. In fiction, you have to boil people's, boil those functions down and... and um, blend them so you'll have you know on CSI for example and in television you'll have um, the forensic pathologists will often be doing other stuff as well or you'll have trace evidence people who also do DNA which would never happen Mm. in real life they're all highly specialized um, very small areas and and there's vast teams of people do you sit there and watch CSI and go no that wouldn't happen oh yes that's real well no that's that's not I do I I do exactly it's exactly what I do um and uh and mostly oh god they'd never wear that and and because and they would never do stuff at the scene they're always somehow getting all this whiz-bang stuff out of the back of their cars and doing stuff um at the scene you never do stuff at the scene except for possibly uh, of course you know actually working on a um a blood trail or something like that with luminol to, to show up uh, blood stains but most work that can be done back at the lab will be done back at the lab if there's any any choice about it because it's so much more controllable so if we want the real thing we're going to read your books absolutely yes. <laughs> so on that note thank you very much for your time today liz it's a pleasure You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.